was a little bit jarring. He was listed as an inmate at the Rockland Insane Asylum. And then lo and behold, my grandmother was listed there as well. Hi, I'm Barbara. And I'm Hope. And we, we are, are the Heritage, Heritage Hunters. Each month, we will bring you real stories from real people researching their genealogy and family history to inspire you on your genealogical journey. On today's episode, John Mancini joins us from the Washington, D.C. area to discuss his new book, Immigrant Secrets, The Search for My Grandparents. John started his genealogical journey with very few and often incorrect facts about his grandparents. John faced dead ends on finding his grandparents until the 1940 census as inmates at the Rockland Insane Asylum. Join us as we hear how John used genealogy to discover the truth about his family and a reflection on the impact of secrets on our lives. The origins of the book go back. I grew up in a family in suburban New Jersey, outside of New York. We There were six kids and my parents. And we had, if you've ever seen the television show, The Wonder Years, it was sort of that same time period and this somewhat idyllic growing up experience in northern New Jersey. And we never really thought about that or thought about how special that was, or I'm not even sure we fully appreciated it, frankly, at the time. There was one thing that was a little unusual, and that too didn't really strike us as very unusual which was that while we had a lot of information about my mom's side of the family, which was on the Ireland side, on my dad's side, we didn't really know much of anything. And about the only thing we knew was that his parents were from Italy. They emigrated to the United States sometime in the 1920s, that he served in World War II on a destroyer off the coast of the East Coast of the United States, that his mother's maiden name was Defabritus, and her first name was Elizabeth, and his father's name was Frank, and that he worked in a fruit stand when he was growing up in lower Manhattan, and that his parents died sometime during the 1930s. And that was really all we knew. And People say, gosh, you must have been the most incurious bunch in the world not to ask any questions about this, about the fact that there were no relatives. But it was one of those things where when you're growing up and between the eight of us, we were just one person short of a baseball team. So there was always something going on and it just didn't even occur to us. And, and that was just the way it was. And it, we just never really thought too much about it. And that was how things proceeded along until the 1940 census. When the 1940 census came out, my dad was long gone. He died in uh, 1987. My brother and I started poking around. You get to a certain age, you have grandkids, and you know you start poking around a little bit, wondering about uh, family history. And so the 1940 census pops up, and it turns out that they were not dead. In, in the 1930s, like we had always thought. And on top of that, it was a little bit jarring because where they were listed came across the grandfather's record first in the census is that he was listed as an inmate at the Rockland Insane Asylum, which is outside of New York City. And then lo and behold, my grandmother was listed there as well, also as an inmate. And so that started the, the quest to try to you know, figure out, okay, what was this all about? So we did the usual thing to kind of start out with, which was that, first of all, just tried to find some basic information to backfill what 
we didn't know about the family history. And so in that regard, you know, familysearch.org and ancestry.com and all of that were really instrumental in figuring all that out. And we found out that she came over in 1920 on the RMS Olympic, which had the notoriety of being the sister ship of the Titanic and was the largest ship in the world for a couple months before the Titanic was released. It was also just as a sidebar, kind of an interesting thing, which I incorporated a little bit in the book, was that on the ship that she came on, the same voyage, were probably the two most famous people in the world at the time, kind of the Kardashians of their time, which was uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Mary Pickford, the movie stars who were on their honeymoon. They were in first, she was in steerage, so there's a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of difference there. And actually also interesting, and in a little bit of fiction, I wove this fact into the book, is there was a guy named Archie Leach on the on the ship, and he was 16 at the time, and with a traveling troupe, and he eventually turned into Cary Grant downstream. It was kind of an interesting sort of like, wow, that's kind of a cool little fact. So she came in 1920. He came about six months later on a different ship called the Pannonia. They settled in lower Manhattan around the Flatiron District of New York. My dad pops up in the 1925 census in New York State, did a state census in some of the off years in the early part of the 20th century. Census taker must have arrived 15 days after he was born because it says when it has age in the little box, he had handwritten in there 15 days old, which I thought was kind of a cool little personal touch. Then by 1930, he had a brother that he materialized. They were still living in lower Manhattan. So then at that point, I started looking around and thinking to myself, well, okay, uh, all that came pretty easily, which was, and, and along with that, were some marriage licenses that or marriage certificate at Catholic Church in Lower Manhattan that popped up. Very kind archivist lady helped me find that because the church that they were married in is no longer there. That church um, had been subsumed into another church. I found on there their birth dates, which I'd never known before. I found out that they came from Itri, which is a town along the Appian Way between Naples and Rome and found out the great-grandparents' names were on the marriage certificate, which I hadn't known before. So in a pretty short period of time, had fleshed out a bunch of stuff that we hadn't ever really known and was kind of interesting. That also popped up some other relatives. My grandmother was one of four siblings who were in the States, and uh, my grandfather had a brother in the States. So it still begged the question of, okay, well, <laughs> we've, we've kind of documented that there was this family, but like, like what? And, and what was that all about with regards to, you know, two questions that I was striking out on? So long before this, I had looked through newspaper records and stuff like that, because I thought, well, if these people died in the 30s in the same time, then, you know, maybe it was like a fire, maybe, it, you know, maybe there must have been some reporting of this somewhere. And prior to the census record coming across that had just struck out, which seemed weird at the time. And I was just like, huh, that's kind of funny. And uh, we asked my mom about this. She's still around. She's 91. She said, well, they died in the 1930s. And I did come across a marriage record for her newspaper article that, you know, said, uh, you know, my dad, son of the late Frank and Elizabeth Mancini. The census record was kind of jarring, which then raised two questions, which are really at, at the heart of the book. So two questions were, first of all, how did they wind up at the Rockland Asylum? Actually, three questions. First, how did they walk up at, wind up at the Rockland Asylum? Secondly, what happened to them after they were at the Rockland Asylum? 
And then third, why all the quiet? Why, like, what happened? You know, um, and and what did it mean to my dad to have this family that he never really talked about? Never, you know, and and also to have evidently some extended family, some of them still living in Manhattan that we didn't even know existed. September 6, 2022, at 7 p.m., the Kentucky Genealogical Society is hosting Judy Russell as she presents Inventing America, Records of the U.S. Patent Office. Americans have always been tinkerers and inventors. Records of the U.S. Patent Office can enrich any family's history. Where are they and what can they tell us? Please visit www.kygs.org for additional information registration, and membership. So the first question, how did they wind up there? I did the usual things that most people would do is try to contact all the different state mental health entities to try to get access to the records there. And like many states in New York, is incredibly uncooperative when it comes to health records. I should also say as a sidebar, my professional life is as run, I ran an association of people that did document management, records management, archives, stuff like that. And so I kind of knew, you know, some of the rationales that people use to keep people from getting access to records. And often they center around privacy or theoretically around privacy concerns. I think it's a bit strained concept when it comes to people that are dead to their <laughs> to their relatives but you know that's a battle that exists in almost every state around so i you know did foia requests I, everything just i was i struck out struck out struck out and and i was kind of thinking well maybe i'll i hadn't decided to write the book at this point maybe i just will have to live with that i won't know how they wound up where they were i came across a book by a guy named Steve Luxenberg who is a former reporter for the Washington Post. And he wrote a book called Annie's Ghost. It's a terrific book. If you haven't read it in the context of genealogy stuff, it's really fun. His story was that his mom made a big deal all her life. She was an immigrant as well. Big deal all her life of saying that she was an only child. And she was a somewhat mercurial character. They never really questioned any of that. And eventually, once his parents died... He started getting bills for a cemetery plot that he couldn't figure out, like, why he was getting this this bill or what this was all about. And it turned out that his mother had had a sister who had been institutionalized at a very young age and wound up living for quite some time and unknown to anybody in the family. And everybody had kept the silence. And so I contacted him and I said, Steve, I'm running into all these dead ends. How did you break through? And he gave me a piece of insight that was incredibly helpful, which was legal records are held to a different standard than health records. And he said, if they were committed, I would try to find the commitment records. And that might tell you what had happened to them. Armed with that, I knew they were in Lower Manhattan. I called up some courthouse on Center Street in Lower Manhattan, the Supreme Court. I got a guy on the phone and I said, you know, I'm looking for these two records for commitment records, probably in the 1930s, because they wound up at 
the asylum by 1940 for Frank and Elizabeth Mancini. And this fella, never forget, he said, just a minute, let me check my index cards. And I kind of thought, oh, no, geez, what, what is this going to be all about? You know, I, I thought, you know, we haven't digitized these records yet. But he came back just a very few minutes later. So yeah, one for Frank in 1932 and one for Elizabeth in 1938. I was like, holy cow, you got to be kidding me, really? I said, well, how do you get these records? Or where do you, where do you get these records? And he said, well, you have to call this other number. Tell them I told you to call them, which was very helpful because I don't think they would have helped me otherwise. And they can request the record from storage and they'll bring it to the courthouse. So that's what I did. And remarkably quick fashion. The records were available at the reading room at the Supreme Court building in in New York. So I went there following all the stereotypes that I've ever had about records managers and archivists and stuff, went down into the basement and, you know, had all these kind of goofy things. And sure enough, fella materialized with two accordion folders and handed it to me. And I was like, oh my gosh. And, you know, and then I thought, okay, well, one way or another, I'm going to find out what what happened here because they have these records and I so so I went for the first one for my grandfather because I figured I'd go in chronological order and sure enough in there was the, the green commitment record and it's actually if you go to uh, search for my grandparents.com some of those primary records I've put on the website where all the stuff came from but you know what had happened and there's a lot of de- there was a lot of detail in the commitment record that basically told the story is that he had gone somewhat off the rails in around like 1930 or so and stopped going to work and, you know, was prone to a lot of outbursts and abusive behavior and uh, a lot of things like that. Apparently, there was a precipitating incident in their apartment in August of 1932. At that point, must have called the police or something, and he wound up going to Bellevue for observation. So he winds up taken there. Then the part that was just really remarkable to me, especially thinking about legal processes these days, is five days after he was taken to Bellevue for observation, he was committed to the Rockland Asylum. His wife, Elizabeth, was the complainant or whatever that term is, the signer, you know, on that. And there's a lot of detail, which you can see on the on the record. The diagnosis ultimately was dementia precox, which is kind of the precursor of schizophrenia, although it was also at the time kind of a catch-all for like 50% of the people that were in asylums, certainly being indigent, immigrant, not native English speaker, all those issues factored in probably to the speed with which he was institutionalized. So then accordion folder number two reached in. And there was an envelope inside of this one. The other one was just the documents in themselves. It was an envelope in one. And it was Elizabeth Mancini up in the corner. And then it said, ordered sealed by order of the court. And uh, the envelope was sealed. This is for files that haven't been touched in over 80 years. And I was like, ah, you know, so close. <laughs> so um, at that point, I had one of the probably had one of those like Jiminy Cricket, like devil and angel kind of things on my shoulders, like, you know okay, is anybody going to notice if I just slide my fingernail underneath this thing and just take a look at what's in here and all that kind of stuff? And and then, like I say, I've spent some time in my professional career working with records management people and all, and I thought, gosh, I can't plead stupidity or ignorance to this. I better not do this. And then, and then kind of more practically, I thought, you know, I wonder if there's cameras up, up above here, you know, someplace. And so I went and I asked the people at the desk and they said, oh, you know, you can't open that you need an order of the court to get access to that. You know, you need a judge to uh, order that record open. And I was like, 
get a, and I'm not a lawyer. And I was like, oh man, you know, okay, well, how does this go work? And uh, they tried to explain it. And I kind of like hemmed and hawed a bit and stuff. And it was, it was going to cost like 300 bucks to get this order of the court done and all this stuff. And, and it wasn't that I was objecting to the money. I was, I was mainly thinking, well, will this actually work? Cause I didn't really know kind of what I was doing when it came to those kind of legal documents. So fast forward a bit and I have a good friend who is the uh, records guy for Administrative Office of State and Local Courts, I think, is there something like that. And I was talking to Steve about this, and I had come so close to this record and stuff like that. And he said, he said, well, did you check the statute of limitations on seals? And I was like, well, you know, they all told me there that I, you know, couldn't open them. And so sure enough, I went back and checked the statute of limitations on New York uh, State commitment seals, and it was 75 years. And so... I could have actually opened the envelope when I was there. So it gets worse. So immediately I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll, let me let me get up there and, and see if I can, you know, just go and open the thing. By this point, we're in the middle of COVID and everything was shut down. around, da, 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 all this kind of stuff. So finally, we got a little bit of a glimmer of COVID space back around, I guess it was July when, when things started to open up of 20, 2021, started to open up a little bit. And there were people back in the office and stuff and everything. And I said, you know, I had been in there, you know, a year and a half ago, you know, I want to come and get this record and statute of limitations, all that kind of stuff. So they went and checked and stuff. And then they came back to me after a little bit and they said, we can't find the record. So then I got another piece of luck in another book called The Lost Family by Libby Copeland. And it's about spitting in the tube and kind of all the implications of that and all that stuff. But anyway, the metaphor she uses is to kind of construct the book is a confused child situation where these two babies were confused that had been born at Fordham Hospital back in 1910 or so. And they were, you know, obviously like it was a a short little Jewish kid that grew up in all these tall Irish people. And then there was a, a big, tall Irish kid that grew up in all these short Jewish people. And then they, you know, this woman was tormented by like, this couldn't be, this couldn't be, this couldn't be. And she finally got to the bottom of, of how this had happened. But a key part in the story was that Libby had gotten records from the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And so I thought, huh, okay, well, maybe if this was a family in some sort of turmoil, and if the father had been institutionalized, maybe there's some records floating around at this New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. So I called, called them up, got a really, really nice archivist lady named Chelsea, 
And she again, you know, checked some records and pulled up an index card and she said, is this them? And she showed me over Zoom, the, the, I said, yep, that's them. And it was 1938, matched up the other record. And so um, took her a little while to track down the records. And, and so she eventually tracked down those records and sent them to me, which told me the story of how my grandmother had wound up um, on the other side of the authorities, which was that in 1938, she had stopped accepting and signing child welfare checks, which were $55 a month from the city for child support, because she had become convinced that she was the force that had institutionalized her husband, that she had signed things that she didn't understand at the time, and that if she refused to sign things moving forward, that was the only way for her to assert some sort of authority that would ultimately lead to getting her husband released. At one point in May of 1938, there was a um, an incident where some of the authorities came to check on the kids. And my dad was in the apartment at the time. He was 13 at the time. And they left and everything was seemed okay. And then they heard um, screams once they got back down to the to the um, ground level. And so they went scurrying back up again. And, you know, my dad had been put in a really very difficult position for a 13 year old, which is he was the voice of reason trying to get his mom to sign these things, because otherwise these people wouldn't start, wouldn't stop coming and, you know, they wouldn't leave them alone and all that kind of stuff. And so she was all agitated and he was threatening to jump out the window and then and a lot of screaming and back and forth and back and forth. So that precipitated a report at that point. A couple of days later, they showed up and picked up my, um, my dad and his brother at, their, um, at PS 105 in, uh, in New York. And they sent a note to my grandmother saying that there would be a children's court hearing that day on custody of the kids. I don't think, judging from what happened, that she really understood. Plus, she had this paranoia about official, you know, that all along it was going to be like, you know, they, they took my husband. Now they're going to take my kids, you know, that whole um, dialogue. So anyways, she doesn't show up for the for the hearing. So sure enough, the kids show up. The kids are in custody someplace. They don't show up at home. Next morning, she's like, where are my kids? Where are my kids? She shows up at the local police station and you know, she's kind of hysterical trying to find out where her kids are. You know, I'm sure there was all language barriers too um, along the way. She um, ultimately, they finally track down and they tell her that the kids have been taken into custody. She kind of goes hysterical at the police station. The police take her to Bellevue. And five days later, she's committed to the Central Islip Asylum. And then from Central Islip ultimately makes her way up to um, the Rockland Asylum. The second question, which one might ask, <laughs> is what happened to them after that? I requested my dad's military records. He went into the Navy in 1944, and it is in enlistment papers, you know, where it lists next of kin. It doesn't mention his father, but he does mention his mother. The guardians are, are, an, are some of these aunts and uncles that we didn't know anything about, but mentions his mother, but says that she's at Buffalo in the, the Buffalo Asylum. And I was like, like, like what the, how could this story get any crazier? So, you know, okay, well, what happened? And 
New York State is really hard to get death certificates if you don't have an approximate date of death. It wasn't exactly 100% clear that it was them, but it looked suspiciously like them. I requested the death certificates for, for that. And sure enough, it was right. And it turned out, this is where it gets really kind of crazy. My grandfather lived till 1990. He was uh, 94 years old when, when he passed away. And my grandmother lived till 2002. So she was 101 when she died. I eventually tracked down where they were buried. They're both buried in, I guess you'd call them potter's fields, unmarked graves. One is at Calvary Cemetery in New York. Grandmother, I don't know what this was about. Um, because the death certificate showed that she died in Queens. So eventually she somehow like wound up going from Buffalo back to Queens someplace. And she's buried outside of Trenton, New Jersey. And the book is not quite in any particular genre. First, it's the family history genealogy story of how like I figured out all this. That, and that's kind of one track that runs through the book. There's a second track that runs through the book, which is a historical reconstruction of the grandparent story based on the couple data points that I have. And then the last part of it is my dad and the nature of childhood trauma and, you know, how does that affect people? And I should say there's another whole side to this story, which is I didn't really touch on this too much in the book because I didn't think it was my story to tell is that I mentioned earlier that my dad had a brother. And so he was born in 1928. And I can remember him and his family up until I was about, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years old, I guess. And then I think at some point around there, he tried to commit suicide and he was institutionalized. I think things went way off the rails for him. And at some point, he got access to like our home address and our home phone number. And I think that scared the crap out of my, out of my dad. And so I think he, I mean, who knows, maybe he was in contact many of those years before he passed away with my uncle who was institutionalized. He was institutionalized for what turned out to be the rest of his life. It turned out that he lived until 2017. September 13th, 2022, at 10 a.m., the Mount Vernon Genealogical Society is hosting The Silent, The Invisible, and The Unimportant, Finding Female Ancestors. Our female ancestors lived in the shadow of their male relatives, her father, her husband, and her sons. They were often silent, creating few, if any, records of their own. Invisible, often mentioned only by title, for example, daughter, wife, and mother, or if we are lucky by their given name. More often, they were not mentioned at all, the unimportant. Identifying female ancestors often presents a challenge to the genealogist, but it can be done. Please visit www.mvgenealogy.org for additional information, registration, and membership. My name is Julia Weicker, and I'm the archivist and librarian at Mennonite Life in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a historical organization dedicated to preserving, interpreting, and helping people connect with Anabaptists 
specifically Mennonite and Amish history and culture. Our vision is diverse communities connection across boundaries by knowing and valuing their own and each other's stories of life, faith, cultures, and histories. Our mission is supported by three different sites across two campuses. At the Collections Building, we preserve library archives and museum collections and serve researchers. The Visitor Center offers a gateway to Mennonite culture and a unique reproduction of the Biblical Tabernacle. The 1719 Museum provides insight into the cultural meeting of Mennonite immigrants and indigenous populations through the 1719 Her House in Lancaster Longhouse. So our library and archives is housed in the Collections Building. We specialize in genealogy of names of Mennonite origin and other local names as well. One of our most unique and useful resources is our genealogical card file. It comprises two large card cabinets um, and it has been digitized and is available on Ancestry. It reflects many years of hard work by past staff and volunteers and serves as an entry point for many of our researchers. The Mennonite Life Library is also home to a wide variety of genealogy books about specific families or family lineages. Archival collections of genealogical papers allow our patrons to reference the work of professional amateur researchers. Family reunion records can also be a helpful avenue for finding ancestors. For a tangible view into the past, family Bibles, some of which made the journey from Europe to America and are over 500 years old, chronicle births, deaths, and marriages. As for our digital resources, we offer access to Ancestry and the LNP Lancaster newspaper archives on site. Members of Mennonite Life gain full access to a database of online resources, as well as issues of our quarterly journal of Mennonite genealogy, history, and culture titled Pennsylvania Mennonite Heritage. This database, as well as our library and archival catalogs, may be viewed on our website, MennoniteLife.org. The Collections Building is open Tuesday through Friday, 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. We are always happy to welcome researchers who are looking to discover their family history, and we would be glad to help you begin your search. for joining us today on Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production recorded and mixed by me, Barbara May. We would like to thank our guests for sharing their genealogical experiences and personal stories. Be sure to visit us on our webpage, heritage-hunters.com, and our many social media pages such as Facebook, Twitter, Locals, and more. Please leave us a review, like our page, and follow us to be sure to never miss our show. If you'd like to be on the show or have an idea for an upcoming episode, please email us at 2heritage.hunters at gmail.com. And that's the number 2, heritage.hunters at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Remember to like and subscribe to our podcast. We hope you'll join us next month on Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production.